Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast with Simon Cocking, Senior Editor. I'll be doing a series of interviews with people at the cutting edge of green tech, clean tech, and anything else that we think is interesting and worth listening to for you guys, our listeners. Hi, okay, so for this interview, uh, I'm here with Sam, who's going to introduce herself, and we are going to be talking about, well, I don't know, bees and a few things, yeah? Yeah, bees and a few things. Some okay, flowers. so who am I talking to? So my name is Samantha Parsons. I've lived on Cape for about a year and a half now. Uh-huh. Um, I'm Brennis Reno's partner who runs uh, Fastnet Belted Galloways. Okay. So we have um, a lovely Belted belted Galloway cows, and I am a beekeeper, so I brought my, my bees here. Well, I didn't bring my bees here, but I brought my talent here, and we yeah. have 14 hives at the moment of the native Irish black bee. Cool. And a few ducks, a few pigs, a few sheep. <laughs> so um, why did you come to Cape in the first place? Uh, I was traveling through Ireland about two years ago, and I was doing the Woof program, and I got connected with Ed and the goat farm, so I came and I stayed with Ed yeah. for so, a month. So that was ostensibly to do goats, Yeah. not bees, yeah? Yeah, I, I, I really like animals, mm-hmm. and um, you know, beekeeping, they are an animal technically, but they're not all cute and furry and everything, so it was nice to get a change from... And just I I like milking animals, so it was nice to be on the farm and learn how Ed milks his animals and yeah. makes cheese and ice cream and all that. So okay, so you um, worked with bees before you came here. So maybe tell us about that, and then what made you want to resume doing beekeeping? So where did you do it before? Um, well, I did it in my where I'm from in Northampton, Massachusetts, United States, and I had. Um, about 10 years ago, I was traveling in Greece, and in Greece, they have a, a big culture of beekeeping, uh-huh. and um, there I got to honey. try a lot of different types of honeys, and I was kind of blown away by the fact that honey changes depending on the flowers that the, the honey is collected from. And so I came home, and I found someone to teach me about bees, and I got a few hives, and I was doing it eight years before I moved um, here to Cape. Oh, wow. So, and I had a small business home um, selling honey and, and things, so... Yeah, it's just something I kind of fell in love with and really enjoy, and I really enjoy the bees and continuing to learn about the bees and flowers and just kind of the environment in general because they're all very connected, you know? Yeah. So, look, um, keeping bees on an Irish island and keeping bees in the U.S., what's the, or Greece, what's the same and what's different, or what are the challenges here? Um, the challenges here is um, it's colder. Uh, honeybees generally like it to be very warm. They're kind of a, a Mediterranean um, species that kind of grew out of the Mediterranean and Northern Africa. Um, so that's, that's difficult. Um, I would say a benefit of Cape is that it's a very pristine environment. There's lots and lots of flowers. There's very little spraying. There, you know, you don't really have to worry about people spraying fungicides and all mm-hmm. kinds of nasty chemicals. You know, it's a very clean environment, which, and then you get a very good product because of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, benefits and drawbacks. I mean, where I'm from in New England, we have very hard winters, you know, it can get to be negative 30, yeah. not, not uncommon in the winter. So a lot of bees die in the wintertime, whereas you don't really have that problem here. You know, it doesn't get super, super cold. The bees still kind of flying in the winter and there are still some flowers out, you know, it's yeah. not a snowy, icy wonderland like it is back home, you know, which is nice. It's nice to go out in the winter and see the bees flying and kind of foraging around. So, Does, yeah. And so, so last year, you got your first four hives, right? Uh, yes, that's correct. And now you have fourteen. Yep. So, so, how many? How much was that they swarmed, and how much was that you have got more? And what was the reason to increase? And what's what's the thinking, or what's the plan? 
Um, yeah, well, we're trying to get more genetic diversity. So obviously, if you had just had four hives, they'd be quite inbred. So this year, we got six new hives from a different breeder. Um, yeah. And so we brought in some genetic diversity that way. Still not enough. We know we're, next year we'll get some more bees from hopefully a different breeder and kind of mix it up. But yeah, we have a few queens that we swarmed and some queens we raised here uh -huh. that some of them didn't do so well. Some of them are doing great. So it's kind of still still a learning curve about how um, how to raise a good queen, basically, especially in a harsh environment. So we had um, some queens hatch out in the beginning of the, the summer, and it was right when, I don't know if you remember, we had a big windstorm. Yes, in May, yeah. And so we, that was when the queens were going to go mate, and obviously they, I think they got blown off course or something happened to them and they never came back. So, okay. you know, and, um, you know, weather can really be a factor. So the hive is smart, so did they make more queens? Well, they can't once, um, they kind of put all their eggs in that one queen, and oh, if right. she doesn't come back, then they're doomed, because there's no new eggs to make a queen, you know? Oh. So what they'll do, which is interesting, so bees are kind of a rare thing in nature where the queen um, lays two types of eggs. She lays a, a female egg, which is, um, she has genetics from mom and dad, but she lays the male eggs, which are 100% her genes. There's no male um, mm -hmm. donation. And so when a hive is about to die, um, a worker will start laying, but she can, because she's unfertilized, she can only lay males. So this hive ends up having hundreds, thousands of, of male bees, and it kind of is like a last ditch effort to, well, if we have so many drones out there, we can mate with a queen. Okay. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So our their probability of continuing their genetic legacy is better. Yeah. Um, hive mentality. Yeah. Our first pun. <laughs> so... Uh-huh. Cool. Uh, no, but yeah, they're just kind of fascinating about how their their biology, and I kind of like to think of them not as individuals, but the hive as kind of um, an animal itself. Yeah, which people have said it kind of is really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, if you think about maybe like how your cells work in your body to make you know yeah. you function, you can kind of think of a single bee working as a cell to make sure to achieve you're, the bigger goal. Yeah. And so we've been talking about also solitary bees and bumblebees as well. So, so do we have many here? Yeah, we have lots here. This is a great place for native bees. So many. I'm just starting to learn about the native bees. I think I only really know about ten species, but there, I think there's 98 species yeah. of native bee and, in Ireland. And do you see them? Can you differentiate? This is maybe a dumb um, question between a honeybee, a solitary bee. I mean, bumblebees are bigger. I can tell the difference between bumblebees and solitary bees and a sweat bee, which I think are the three, and then a honeybee, of course, which are the four distinct categories. But I can't really, you know, I can't be like, oh, that's a, a certain type of mining bee or a digger bee. I know kind of what some digger bees look like. But, but do we have many varieties here? Oh, yes. Yeah, uh -huh. many varieties. So um, there's numerous types of bumblebees. There's at least, um, I don't know all their names, but there's the, the carter bee. I think there's a, a few different Carter bees here. I think there's at least two that I've seen. There's one that's all like, t it's like a brownish yellow color. And then there's another one that kind of has a, um, a reddish butt, but kind of a blacker body. Uh -huh. And then there's um, three with like a white bottom, which, you know, you might be like, oh, that's the white. There actually is a white bottom um, bumblebee. I'm not making that up. But um, it kind of, I kind of like to think of it as a bodybuilder, kind of okay. like has no neck. And it's just like one big one big thing but then there's a, a garden bumblebee which also has a white bottom which kind of has a more distinct head and um, 
a, a buff-tailed bumblebee, which also has a white bottom, but um, ha doesn't have like a stripe on its head. Mm -hmm. It um, just is like a black head. So yeah, there's lots of like minute details where if you weren't, you know, necessarily paying attention, you'd be like, oh, that's a white-tailed bumblebee. Yeah. But they're so actually just more than people would realize. Yeah, you kind of have to look closely and be like, oh, wait, no, they're a little different. <laughs> so um, what what can people do to encourage bees and the things that you suggest are some specifically better for honeybees like what would you do if you want to encourage more bees to help them and then what kind of planting would encourage what kind of bees yeah so people ask me that a lot and i think planting flowers is the obvious one uh -huh. but we have to remember that to make just a teaspoon of honey a bee has to visit thousands of flowers okay to make just a tiny like a one teaspoon of honey so you really have to think on kind of a grand scale of the flowers in in the garden and i think that's why things like the ragwort the purple loosestrife um the japanese knotweed they're all kind of in invasive plants right mm -hmm. but they're great pollinator plants because they have hundreds of thousands of little blossoms on each each plant and they're full of nectar so i know everyone kind of hates the ragwort and we Prentice and i have a a disagreement about about uh -huh. them sometimes because th it's such a great it has the most nectar of any plant on cape so that's why the bees and the butterflies love it um, and you were saying about different flowers give different flavor so yeah. do we know what flavor right those flowers give the bit the honey i've never harvested a honey from ragwort so i don't know what it tastes like but i i know an apple blossom honey is a, an amber in color and it has a very sweet you know fruity taste as mm -hmm. you would imagine an apple to taste. Um, if you have a, a knotweed honey from Japanese knotweed, it's very dark. It's um, brown, not transparent, and it's very, um, it's almost bitter. It has a very strong flavor, it, almost like molasses. You know, you, you wouldn't really want to um, put it on like a fruit salad. You'd want to cook with it or something. Um, and then what else is here? The brambles, they have a very light, clear, almost clear honey, and that is also very floral and sweet, very sweet. Um, and honey has two different types of sugar. There is um, fructose and glucose. They're all simple sugars. So when you eat honey, that sugar is absorbed by your body right away and you get that energy right away. But the sugars, the glucose and the fructose are what give them their flavor. So remember I was telling you about the, the knotweed honey that's very dark mm -hmm. and very distinct? That has a lot of glucose. And then a bramble honey that's very clear and, and bright and floral has more fructose. And you can also tell, um, you know, honey is crystallized very quickly. They yeah. get hard. Um, those honeys have more glucose than fructose. So, yeah, each flower has its own, um, you know, nectar is probably 30% sugar, 70% water on average. So what the bees do is they take up that nectar, and in their system they have a special enzyme that they add to the nectar. They come to the hive and they regurgitate it. And basically with that combined enzyme, the bees evaporate that extra water, that 70% of water, and they make the honey um, the right viscousness, the right amount of water so that bacteria cannot d divide. And that's why honey never goes bad. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because there's so little available moisture mm -hmm. that nothing can survive. And then they, they cap it with a layer of wax so they kind of vacuum seal it in a way. It's their lid. So you have bees. Bees go to many places. So therefore, does that mean that the, the honey will have the flavor of many flowers or does the harvest get honey does the honey get harvest frequently enough that that one harvest will be particular flowers 
like do you either have a big m mishmash flavor or do you have sequentially different flavor harvesting every month or two because there are different flowers that they go to yeah you would and it you know um so in the early season when the brambles are blooming and the white clover you get a very light yeah. honey like i was saying and then as you move towards now uh, the heather is blooming, the ling heather, and that um, is kind of like a knotweed. It's, it's a darker honey, and it mm -hmm. has a stronger flavor. Um, and so, yeah, that the the plants during the seasons change. So, is this a bit like micro flavors of wine that you have jars of bottled honey, but depending on what the day you got it, it has different. Does it have different flavors? Yeah, and you know what the bees. Um, will go, if mostly the brambles are blooming, they will go to the brambles and they will take the honey. But they're not, they will go to other things too. Yeah. So maybe the majority of the honey is the bramble, but there's also other parts that are maybe the thistle or, you know, the white clover or the red clover or whatever other flowers out there. So you will get minute amounts mm -hmm. of um, different nectars because bees, um, you can kind of think of it as you know, eating corn all the time. You don't, you know, maybe if you really like corn, you're going to eat corn because that's what's available, but then you wouldn't want to have your diet all that. So that's yeah. why they kind of add certain things. And that's one of the reasons why, um, so the United States is such a big place and beekeepers actually for a living will take their bees on trucks and mm -hmm. drive from California to do the almonds. They'll drive to New Mexico to do the mesquite and then they'll be in Florida to do the apple blossoms and up to New England to do the, the blueberries and, you know, down around again. And they're actually finding that that's actually very damaging to bees' nutrition because it's like eating one thing all okay, the time. Okay, so it's like binge eating one. Yeah, and when you are eating the same thing, you're obviously not getting the nutrients that you, all the nutrients that you need um, because different flowers provide different nutrients. And the same thing with pollen, like different pollens have more or less protein or, or better, you know, flavonoids or other chemicals in them to help the bees grow and develop and it, their immunity too. So I guess that's the classic thing that uh, industrialization of agriculture isn't necessarily as effective as people have thought it was. You know, there there are the drawbacks that you might imagine there might be from trucking bees. To yeah, it, it has drawbacks, and yeah. um, you can imagine an animal being stressed, like a human would be stressed, all that working and all that traveling and not really getting a yeah, break. Being on tour. And um, the almond growers in California have been actually pretty. Um, bad, and I think the last, uh, maybe not this year, but the last few years, they haven't actually had beekeepers coming to pollinate their crops because they continually spray their crops when the bees are there. Even if the beekeepers ask them, you know, please don't spray okay. while the bees are there because yeah. it's damaging. And so um, there was a big almond shortage a few years ago because beekeepers refused to pollinate the crops. Um, so, and if you think about, you know, maybe your farm isn't spraying, but your neighbor's farm is. The bees, what makes them, what makes a honeybee such a great pollinator is that it will do a five mile radius around its hive. Mm -hmm. So, most native bees, they only go maybe a half a mile, maybe a mile around their nest. They don't, you know, they, they do great pollination. They're great pollinators, but they don't have the distance like a honeybee would. So, if you can think about, well, if you're living on an organic farm, but your neighbor's not organic, you know, you can't really control yeah. what they're going to and bringing toxic pollen back to feed their, their larvae and stuff. So how would you even manage that? Um, I guess you'd have to have a lot of land. Okay. Um, <laughs> so here, um, you are surrounded by water, which I guess means that potentially bees on islands, it's more controllable what they're eating. Yeah, and you know, I don't think anyone, I mean, I'm sure some people are spraying a little bit here and there, but it's certainly not on a grand scale. Yeah, because it's not mostly, it's mostly beef here, isn't it? It's not really. 
Yeah, it's mostly beef, and there's no, um, I don't know, like, it's not mass agriculture where yeah. people are, you know, having to spray for some kind of fungus on apple trees or, you know, that kind of thing. So it's pretty clean, and, um, you know, I guess one thing that maybe the the common gardener can think about bees, if, you're, if you are going to spray something like a fungicide um, or an herbicide or an insecticide, never spray when a flower is in bloom. Okay. Always spray it when they're before bloom or after, preferably after the bloom is over, so that the bees aren't going to take yes. that up. And um, so what we thought is only insecticides were harming bees, but we've actually learned that no fungicides and herbicides are very bad for bees um, because they bring that toxic back to their their hive. And a lot of them are time released, so maybe um, a, a farmer will spray for a fungicide, and it'll last um, for a few months or it won't start being activated okay. for another yeah, yeah. month. Yeah. So what the bees do is they bring that pollen with the fungicide on it, and um, the bees don't eat it for a few months, and that's when that fungicide is activated. So it kind of kills them very quickly all at once, and that's can be that's a symptom yeah. of um, colony collapse. And you, people are wondering, oh, what happened to my hive? Um, why did it just oh. suddenly get sick? So, okay, so, so they now think it might be due to that. It's a contributing factor. Yeah. There's um, something called a varroa mite, which is like a giant tick that drinks their blood and passages, passes viruses onto them and all kinds of nasty things, and that contributes to their immune, you know, dysfunction. So there's a whole, it's just like a whole range of problems coming together at once. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so, what, so, 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 so why are bees good? Why is it useful to help to encourage bees, and how, how are they helpful in our wider ecosystem of how we live and what we do? Yeah, um, so bees give us most of our food. I think 30% of our food is directly pollinated from just honeybees, not, not native bees. Native bees do a lot of pollinating, and you could think about, well, I, I live in an environment with beautiful flowers, native flowers around, and um, trees and shrubs, and all those things have to be pollinated by a bee. And, and can they only be pollinated by a bee, or is it some that can only be pollinated by a bee? Um, some are only pollinated by bees. Um, some can be wind pollinated, mm -hmm. um, and like most grasses and corn. And so, like um, the majority of your diet, you know, if you're eating mostly wheat or corn or um, you know any kind of grain, it's probably pollinated by wind. But all your fruit, um, most of your vegetables are all pollinated by some type of bee. So there has been a drop in the number of bees, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore, are we seeing less things being pollinated then? Yeah, so Harvard in, is working, they've been working on for the last, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, um, a robot bee in the, um, well, it has, it has other implications for surveillance and environmental um, management tool, but the main thing is if bees do die out, we're desperately going to need something for our survival to pollinate yeah. um, everything, so they've been working on this robot bee to pollinate. And there's already been a region in China that has lost all their bees because of um, pollution and overuse of insecticides. Mm -hmm. And so people go around with um, like a necklace of pollen with a little uh, cotton swab and go around and hand, and hand pollinate apple trees and things that they yeah. need, which is quite sad. So I mean, um, that's a lot of work to do something that used to happen with no work at all. Yeah, and the, the financial loss of having to pay someone to yep. to do that work, and also um, how in, how imbalanced the environment will be. You know, like I think you know we're learning more and more how if you take one thing away from the environment, how it really affects yeah. the, the greater environment. And 
Um, so one thing about like the bees and how we know we're talking about a little bit about the invasive species and the, the ragwort and mm -hmm. the purple lustra, these plants that kind of grow uncontrollably that the bees love, you know, maybe sometimes I think, well, maybe that's a response to an unbalanced environment that we live in now, you know, where we have mostly grasses or pavement or, um, you know, not things that bees can't eat. You yeah. know, there's there are nectar deserts where there's just swaths and swaths of land that bees can't survive because there's no flowers, you know. And, um, yeah, look, I mean, and with the pollination, I did see, like, a video of, um, like, like, soap bubbles as a way to pollinate, that they were sort of blowing these, you know, like the way kids blow bubbles. Uh -huh. And it had the, the the pollinator ingredient on it, and they were blowing it up to pop onto the things, you know. Oh wow! So I don't know how well it works, and yes, wouldn't it be easy if the bees just did it, you know? Yeah. But you know, that's the problem, you know. Well, so and you can think about well, we already live in a time of, you know, some places have extreme food insecurity, and if we lived in a place where something that we've always taken for granted is this little, kind of almost invisible insect going around pollinating, you know, like how disastrous could that be for our food system, you know, and it, yeah, it's kind of, it'd be a crisis, it would be a nightmare if bees um, disappeared and they are rapidly disappearing and at a frightful rate, so, yeah. and, um, you know, maybe we could kind of continue to keep honeybees for a while, but they all have all kinds of health problems, whereas native bees are, their health is pretty hardy. And, you know, we kind of think about, well, climate change affects bees and their populations, but sometimes I think climate change is a bit of an abstract um, concept, you know, like, well, how exactly does it affect bees? For so, people to get their head around. Yeah, yeah I think so, yeah. so one of the things is um, a drought. So we've, ha we've had a drought last summer, and we had a drought um, earlier this year. And what that does is the plants have no water and so they, they have no water to make nectar. And when there's no nectar available, there's obviously no food for bees. So depending on how long that drought will last, the bees will starve to death. Yeah. And that, that's a way that it's getting rid of a huge population of bees, um, and maybe a few colonies survive and they can rebuild. Um, also, if you have a spring, an early spring, because it's warm, the flowers are coming out and blooming, and um, the bees may not be awake yet, or they're, they're waking up too. But then um, a sudden frost comes and kills all those those flowers, and so all that food that bees once relied on for early spring, which is a spring is a time of kind of hunger anyway, that's no longer there. Yeah. And that's another way that they can starve or be frozen to death as well, because if they're if they hatch too early, and they the the freezing comes, they'll they'll freeze they'll freeze themselves. Yeah. Because most native bees only live one year. Okay. So solitary bees will hatch out in the spring. They live their life, um, you know, gathering food all summer, and then in the springtime, I mean the fall, sorry, they lay their eggs to hatch out again in the spring. Yeah. So it's a cycle of, you know, whereas a honeybee colony um, continues to live all year. They, they go into kind of a hibernation in the winter where they're not as active, but they haven't died off necessarily and yeah. start over. Yeah, look, I, like you say, um, uh, the trouble is, is with complex ideas like climate change, it's hard for people to... Um, engage with it fully because it's too complex. It's almost too too hard for them to conceive of and also how to fix. Yeah. So I think that it is. I mean, one of the reasons that we're doing this is because there is a, a bee ambassador program. So the idea is to try and get people to articulate the value of bees, how they help, and the challenges that are being faced. And you see, I guess it's a bit like the way polar bears are symbolic of the melting ice caps. Similarly. You know, flowers and bees may 
you know, people almost need it broken down into bite-sized bits to be able to understand it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I know f- for myself, just learning about bees and how their biology and how they how they live, it isn't necessarily intuitive. You know, you might think it's intuitive because it seems, oh, very simple. The bees pollinate the flowers, you know, and then a flower makes fruit. And, you know, it, it all seems kind of straightforward. But actually, when you get into the, the details of it, it's like, oh, well, actually, a lot of that could go wrong. And if it does go wrong, like that has all implications for all mm-hmm. these other things and other things fail. And it's like a cascading effect of yeah. disaster. But um, a delicate process. Yeah. And kind of just realizing that this world that we kind of take for granted is very delicate and can um, one small change can really affect kind of a lot of things we do we take for granted like food and um, you know nice sunny days like this mm-hmm. or you know just kind of general living conditions that we we're very used to yes and we'd appreciate it but yeah, continued exactly <laughs> um, if people want to go further into beehives and stuff how would they find out more and how do you f- how do you stay up to date how, do you, how does one find out more about uh, that's a good question. Well, Ireland is very good. They have a lot of um, bee clubs, beekeeping clubs, yeah. and I think most counties and regions have their own clubs. So wherever you are, you should join a club, and mm-hmm. they provide lots of information, resources. Um, I think talking to someone who's done it a while is a, is, a, is a great resource because yeah. they can tell you and show you. Um, you know, reading books is great. Um, some books are better than others, obviously. Um, I've been kind of reading older beekeeping material lately and um some of the stuff is really interesting and like some stuff doesn't change you know but some of the more scientific stuff has changed and so when you read some of these older books from like the 1930s or something it's like oh well they they hadn't really known that that was a thing you know like some of these older books they're like baby care books yeah exactly kind of things that change like that Mm -hmm. um and it's interesting to kind of see, like, oh, what they were doing then and how we do now. And also, even just 100 years ago, how d- how different beekeeping was. Beekeeping was actually a lot easier 100 years ago because they didn't have a varroa mite. They didn't have really okay. um, extreme changes in weather. Yeah. You know, things were actually fairly predictable, whereas now um, a lot of those things that, you know, people used to take for granted aren't really um, – can't really go by that anymore. So it's interesting. Yeah, too. and like you said, it's evolving. Um how can people um, find out about you guys and what you do? We have a website. Okay, so what's the website? It's um, fastnetbeltagalloways.com. Cool, and we'll put the link in the in the, yeah. the blurb. Yeah. But that's about it right now. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Simon. We hope you enjoyed that podcast, and we will be bringing you more across as diverse and interesting a range of stories as we can find. You're welcome to reach out to us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or by email, and give us any feedback and let us know what you'd like us to cover in the future. Thanks, and keep listening.